on how to read the Bible for all it's worth, doing a review of uh, the book. And uh, tonight we're going to finish up that study, and we're going to uh, go back and uh, tie together a few loose ends that we left last week, and then just uh, uh, summarize what we've looked at, and then uh, choose an example to show the importance of it, and not for the purpose of giving uh, an interpretation that anybody will agree with or anything like that, but just simply to show the importance of, of using the tools that we're talking about. And what I'd like to do tonight, I've talked off the top of my head from reading the book, but I'd like to read some direct statements tonight. And then before, to clarify an area, you know, that we got into last week, I'll make two things, two statements uh, concerning what we're not doing in this study. We are not saying that a person cannot pick up the Bible without the aid of anything, dictionary, history book, anything, and read it and get some understanding out of it. He definitely can. Uh, in the same way that I'm not a chemist, but I believe I can take, pick up a graduate chemist book and read, and I won't understand a fraction of what Mark will understand, but I will understand a lot. And I'll, get a, I'll get a lot out of that. And, and so it is with, with uh, other materials. If you can read and you understand words, that you pick up something that's in somebody else's discipline, and you won't understand near as much as they do, but you will understand some. So we're, we're not saying that you can't pick up the Bible and read it and have an understanding of a lot of things, that, uh, and, a lot, and, and a good understanding of, of a whole lot of things. Another thing we're not saying is that we're not saying that a person needs to have read the entire Bible, or for that matter, the entire New Testament, in order to be a Christian. Uh, in the last few weeks, we've had two young girls that are about 10, 11, 12 years of age, somewhere in there, that have been baptized in church. And I believe both of them are saved. That uh, I think that uh, they are they're doing exactly what is right from discipleship. Their environment has been outstanding. And they have grasped a lot of things and related to a lot of things and been around a number of things. And so they have stepped out, and what they've said is they believe this about Jesus, and they've made a decision to be his disciple. Neither one of those little girls have read the entire Bible. I'd, I'd feel safe in saying that. I don't believe that they could do sound exegesis on much of it, but yet I honestly believe that, uh, that in their situations they, they know enough, and, and, that, and they understood the essential elements of salvation. So I want to make that clear that we're not saying that a person needs to have a tremendous high level of understanding to become a Christian, uh, nor are we saying that, uh, that he has to have read the entire Bible or, or anything of that nature. But what we are saying is that, um, that if a person wants to read the Bible from the, understand, from the standpoint of understanding it as well as he can understand it, and understand it well enough to actually teach others, uh, and, and to understand it well enough to really uh, do some good uh, in a real positive sense uh, with his information and all, uh, within the kingdom of heaven, that uh, that ta there are certain uh, tools and skills that that person can put into practice that will help him develop uh, that kind of understanding. Also, uh, another thing on, on reading 
the Bible for all it's worth and developing the best understanding. And don't want to, I don't want to get into names or anything like that. It's my personal conviction that one of the reasons that uh, we have so many denominations and, and there's so many uh, uh, divisions and things of that nature uh, is because of a lack of study, of serious study uh, of the Bible. I think that the majority of Christians are content to let the preachers study for them and to present lessons. I think that Christians that uh, will do what you guys are doing right now, and that is you set aside time separate apart from the church Bible study and all to really study and all, you're really the exception to the rule. I mean, the majority of, of Christians will not put in uh, that kind of time in, in Bible study. My guess would be that the majority of Christians have not studied the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I'm talking about people that have been in for a number of years. That would be my guess. You know, I may be, may be wrong on that. Uh, but anyway, that uh, because of that, uh, we, when we depend entirely on the preachers for the teaching, preachers, and I don't want to put down preachers, I am one. And I preach for a group and, and I'm supported and all. In some areas, preachers are at a disadvantage uh, in compared to the lay person in, in coming to certain truths. Uh, remember with Jesus, who are the people that found it the most difficult to see Jesus as Messiah? Religious so, leaders. Yeah. Religious leaders. So, okay. The scribes, the lawyers, the, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, uh, and the common people heard him gladly. Uh, and and they, they found it the easiest to, to recognize uh, uh, who he was. Well, when we look at the common people, were they smarter than the religious leaders? I wouldn't want to say that. We know they weren't as well educated. So what was it then that helped the common people relate to him easier than the religious leaders? Lack of bias. Okay, that'd be my guess, Mark. Uh, lack of bias. That uh, they, uh, they were not in the... When, see, when you are a part of something, and it has a specific set of beliefs that are taught, uh, if you don't watch yourself very carefully, you can spend your time studying from the standpoint of being definitive of that particular body of belief that you have to defend. Uh, uh, we can see lawyers in a courtroom considering the same evidence and yet coming at it completely different, whether they're the prosecution or the defense. And, and we can see uh, different governments each presenting their argument for their actions. Like right now, we're, we're on the verge of a trade war with China. Their interpretation of the relationship with us, uh, looking at the same facts, is completely different. And they, they think that we're very biased, we think they're very biased in, in the situation. But when you are involved, it is difficult. So I'm saying that, that as long as the common person is content to let the preachers do the studying, the denominations are going to stand. And we're not going to break that wall down, and there's, there's not going to be uh, uh, more unity or anything like that. And, and again, you may not share the same conviction, you know, and I may be off on that. I honestly believe that Jesus prayed for the unity of his followers. I believe that it is a cause of skepticism about the Bible and about Christianity, the fact that uh, uh, the Christians are so divided up, you know, in various ways. So 
I don't know how you get around that, except through the kind of study we're going to talk about here. That, uh, that if we're going to get beyond our biases, beyond our denomination, and come to a real good understanding of this kind of thing. Okay, uh, let me read a few things here, and then I'll throw it open. Uh, he says that uh, in the first task in study is exegesis. He said exegesis is the careful, systematic study of Scripture to discover the original intended meaning. This is basically a historical task. It is the attempt to hear the word as the original recipients were to have heard it. To find out what was the original intent of the words of the Bible. This is the task that often calls for the help of the expert. That person whose training has helped him or her know well the language and circumstances of the text in the original setting. But one does not have to be an expert in order to do exegesis. So he's saying that you need the aid of experts who have made it their purpose in life to study the culture, the history, the languages of, of, a, of these people, but you don't have to be an expert yourself in order to benefit uh, from these people. In fact, everyone is an exegete of sorts. The only real question is whether you will be a good one. How many times have you heard or said what Jesus meant by this was? And his statement is that any time you've made that statement or heard anybody else, you were doing exegesis. You were saying, well, this is, I know that's what it says, but here's what he really meant. For example, Jesus says, pluck out your eye or cut your arm off and cast it from him. And we say what he really meant was such and such. Um, then he comes on down and he says, uh, uh, the problem with this kind of exegesis, in other words, if you're just going to get in there and everybody offers their opinion of what I think he meant and all, is that uh, such exegesis is often too selective and that it often the sources consulted are not written by true experts. That is, there are secondary sources that also often use other secondary sources. So he says when you get into this kind of thing, number one, you're, you're, you're being selective. What he means by selective, and he goes on, is that the, generally when people get into this area of exegesis, it's when they get to a problem text that is giving them difficulty. Then they want to go in and do some exegesis on that passage so we can figure out what it's saying. For example, 1 Corinthians 11 would be a problem text. I mean, uh, unless it's either a problem text or women ought to wear a veil, one or the other. So when we get to those, but he said the problem there is you're still liable to miss it. And what he's saying is every text, and he's got that in big letters, that you can't just selectively pick out certain texts that give you a problem because that text itself is part of a bigger thing and said if you just do it with selective text, you're liable to look at it through your denominational eyes, your own biases, and make it say what you want to. That what we need to do is look at the entire Bible. And then after we look at the entire Bible, then we look at these individual passages that uh, give us a problem. And that's hard, I think, for all of us, each of us. I think that we tend to, what we've heard from a child seems to sound right, and so we, we notice the things that support us, and, and we notice the things that maybe um, are wrong, or at least we perceive as wrong in another, in, in another right. setting. So, and I think it's really hard for us to 
to do exegesis on everything, including the passages that, right. that I, we think maybe we've nailed down. Yeah. Or our I think the, there's one doctrine, I don't even want to get into it on the thing, but there is a particular doctrine that everybody that deals with it deals with individual passages. And if you want to deal with individual passages and exegete just that passage, it seems to say, but you put that entire thing together, and it just doesn't say it. Uh, I mean, whether it's popular or not, it just simply doesn't, doesn't say it. And there's a, a number of things that way that you can in, uh, individually exegete, but that's still not good enough. And, and like Barbara said, we have to watch out. And, and I, I want to, if I don't use it, it'll be because I forget. I want to say we. Uh, there have, I have changed a lot over the years. And when I've changed, it's, it's been on areas where sometimes that I had defended and preached sermons on and, and then had to come back and say, hey, I was wrong, I missed it here. Uh, and, and what I, invariably has happened is I had read my own biases uh, into the text. It was the fruit of the way I had been taught. Uh, and, I, and I have rejected, in fact, one of the reasons that uh, I have a problems with, uh, with people that use age as an excuse for seeing anything new. And I'm not a young man. I'm 55 years of age, and there are things that I believed when I was a young man and preached from the pulpit that I believe are absolutely wrong now. And I've stood before an entire congregation and apologized uh, for having taught some of the things that I did. So I know that, that, you, can, that you can learn as you age, and that there's nothing in age that, that keeps a person from seeing something new. Yeah, okay, now for that, some people... <clears throat> It's been it's been my observation that some people have tied up a lot of years in in what they believe, and so well, just let me give give an example if I can. I know people that when you start to change certain traditions or whatever, um, like within from within our own church, and they've been doing it. A particular way for for decades, they say, "Well, I don't, I don't want to do it this way. That's the way the church I came out of did it." And 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 I've and I've right and I've left that. And so so what I hear out of that is that what I'm hearing is is that they placed a lot of their in, in their mind, a lot of their rightness is, is based on the way that they did certain things, and it's like they've got a lot at stake. It's like I threw all these years away thinking that it was a certain way, and I'm not willing to, I'm not even willing to, to look at the possibility that I could have been wrong for all these decades on that, because, you know, that, that's too painful or whatever to think that. I think so. I, I was thinking as you was talking, Mark, that a, a family that we knew in the uh, where we came from, and this family left a particular denomination and then thought they were taking a stand that was more accurate than before, and I personally believe it was more accurate than before. But then, here when I came back, I actually uh, was there when these people were converted. You know, and in fact, the congregation we came from, most of them in there that I had taught and baptized myself. And so then I come back after having been away for eight or ten years. And, and, I, and I was teaching some things in a different way. They were shocked. And I was saying that, well, I was wrong on that. 
And one family in particular that was very disturbed uh, over this. They said, well, I left that very thing, and you're saying that uh, such and such now. And so, but what, what was the problem is that here they had stated some things very strongly in the group they came out of. You know, and then when they, and, and even more strong, I guess, when they tried to reach some of them. And then here I was saying that, uh, uh, that it, maybe I was wrong. See, maybe I was wrong. But the point is, their problem in seeing what I had to say was not from reading it in the text and seeing it. It was, the, it was the very thing you're talking about. They, they had taken a stand on something for a number of years. And it's like, man, have I spent a number of years of my life taking a stand and making strong statements in my family? And then there's a possibility that I'm wrong on that particular matter. That's hard, too. Once you, all of us, I think, need to, you know, it's, it's, it's hard when you've made a statement really boldly. Yeah. Then it's hard to back up. But you know, we expect other people to do it. It's just like yeah. the yeah, Mark is saying on but people I think it's in the church. People, I think. people in, in our group expect somebody like Mark to look at things that uh, that they believe are wrong in in the group and and to see it, and they're and they're just happy when they, and if, if he sees some particular thing or something. Well, then Mark comes in and he points out some things. In other words, the what what Mark is really seeing is that uh, that yes, the group I was part of may have been wrong on this, but hey, I think they're more right than you guys are on some things. And so then, how does he feel? Well, then he points out some things, and it's sort of like, well, we just can't see this at all. And he already is thinking, well, you know, I, I, I was able to see some things and, and, and change and everything like that. So I, I think that atmosphere of everybody being open is actually good. And I think one thing that, that is important is this realization that a disciple doesn't have to know it all, and he can be wrong. And if we don't tie up salvation into being perfectly right on every doctrine, I think we take a lot of the emotion you know, out of this kind of thing. If we realize we're saved in Christ and we're a disciple of His, even though we may be wrong on some particular doctrines, then it's no big deal to admit, hey, just like Abraham was wrong on some things and so was Moses wrong on some things, uh, I've been wrong on some things too. I think it makes it a lot easier. I think that's an example of where air fellowship uh, an area where, where I think we were wrong. I know I was brought up in believing that, well, my dad would say very plainly, one, all it takes is one sin. You know, if you're guilty of one, you're guilty of all. And so if you don't do things exactly like God says, then, then there's no hope for you. And knowing all, all the time, you don't really keep, you don't do anything perfectly, but... It's like they had determined these particular things had to be done right. Yeah. Okay, he, he goes ahead now and he's talking about his section here on learning to do exegesis. The first thing he suggests, and it's uh, I teach this in school to children when I teach uh, social studies or anything like that, is to read the entire book. People want to sit down and, and read and study a few chapters, read and study a few chapters. There's a place for that. But he suggests sit down and read the book in a setting, or whichever book you're studying. Just sit down and read it in a setting or toe. And don't worry about understanding all the particulars. Just let the whole thing sink in. And get a feel for the tenor and the tone and, 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 and the situation in, in the entire book. Well, I believe that personally for the Bible. 
I believe there's a place for just reading it from Genesis to Revelation in a regular place where you don't get bogged down and you just get a feel for the entire text. And then when you study the individual Bible, to sit down and get a feel for it, then after you have that feel, then we go uh, to the individual text and all. Well, then after you get a feel for the whole thing, he points out that the Bible is given in a historical context. It involves time and culture. It involves geography. Uh, it involves political factors. And then he points out that uh, you really cannot know some of these things unless you're willing to go to some other books. In other words, unless you're willing to consult. And so he recommends at the very basis a good Bible dictionary, uh, such as the five-volume Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible, and just a few other sources. Uh, I don't believe a person needs anywhere near what I've got. He doesn't even need a fraction of it. That, uh, in fact, uh, you, I'll tell you what happens with study. And, and, I'll, and I'll not give it up. I'll keep doing it even though that's the case because of my own feelings and, and something there. Just as when you're getting in physical shape, we know that when you're down here and you're totally out of shape, you make tremendous progress and uh, you can double your push-ups in a few weeks' time if you, could, if you were in bad shape. And, and you can double how fast you can run and double. But then after you get up here and you're in good shape, you, you have a situation where you've got to work real hard for a little bit of gain. All right, what happens when you really start to study? At first, you, you get a tremendous amount of information for the amount of time you're putting in. And you're just learning new things all the time. But somewhere, if you're dealing with a source, now this is not true with science. We're talking about a source where you have a body of information that's there. I mean, no, nobody's adding anything to the first century. It's there. Those events happen. So it's not like science. So when you deal with a body of information like that, you reach a point where then the more you study and the more you study, you get less new information in proportion to the amount of time you read. And so I'm in a situation, and have been, where I might read a book and, and, and get two or three new points out of that book or, an, or one idea or something like that. But I read it for that. And, and of course, what I'm getting also is the reiteration in maybe a different format helps to just put it in my mind. In other words, I feel that uh, I believe your memory works on repetition. Uh, no, no simple thing, uh, uh, difficult thing to understand about memory, it works on repetition. And that's why if you want to remember something, you repeat it several times. And so when I read in all these different sources, uh, I may learn a little bit new and all, but in the repetition uh, makes it alive in my mind, and that's what I want as a teacher. But everybody doesn't need that. Uh, everybody is not, uh, doesn't, and, and I'll fully recognize, like Alvin made a real good point last time, it is totally unfair uh, to expect a man that's out here working all day at a job and he still has to mow his yard and, and, and feed, feed the hound and, and, and keep his car up and, and spend time with his kids and all, to then turn around and come in and spend four or five hours in the evening. Study, he can't do it. Uh, you know, there is, there is no way. And, and I'm saying that there is a place, everybody's not going to run the marathon. But yet, you don't need to be running the marathon to be in good shape, uh, so far as your lifespan is concerned. What I've read, says anything over a half hour is great. You know, that's, that's just getting you in good shape. But as far as your lifespan is concerned, if you put in a half hour a day, uh, you, you, you've about done what exercise is going to do for your overall lifespan. 
Okay, in the same way here, that I want to make that clear, that I believe that a working person, and we're talking about a working lay person, coming to a good understanding that there are some basic dictionaries and basic encyclopedias and basic books that he can have access to and develop a good understanding uh, over, a, over a period of time. Okay, now, I might add that I, I don't say that for preachers. I believe preachers ought to go on. Uh, I feel just like uh, a doctor or anybody else, he's doing it full time, and I think he ought to continue to go, and I think he ought to think in terms of writing and putting out materials or, or, or whatever. So it's, it's, but we're talking about it from just the, the guy that is working out there. Okay, now, uh, what I'd like to do is to give an example of how important it is for you as, a, as an individual to read and look at things in their context. And again, I don't, uh, this here is a book from a religious group, okay? And the group's not important. Uh, what's important is the concept, because what I'm going to read here is believed by most Christian groups, okay? I believe it's false. I may be the one to draw, but I believe it's absolutely false. But I don't believe anybody's going to lose their soul on it. But I also believe that this concept actually hinders people from developing their, in their knowledge and their understanding of the Bible. I think it also causes the gospel to be presented in not the best way when it comes to trying to reach people who are not already of a Christian background. Okay, this is on, uh, uh, on evangelism. The whole section is. The Holy Spirit provides the gas for witnessing. Through his divine presence and power, believers are energized to share their faith with others. An effective evangelism training program will breed a sense of dependency upon the Holy Spirit. It is not enough to know the Holy Spirit is essential for sharing the gospel. The witness must have a conscious sense of the Spirit's presence and power. I suppose one of the most common prayers offered is, Lord, let no one be home where I knock. That kind of fear is common but unnecessary. Okay, why is it unnecessary? According to Acts 1.8, the Holy Spirit brings power into our lives. In John 14, 16, and 17, Jesus said the Spirit is always with us, providing encouragement and comfort. Notice now this statement. The presence of the Holy Spirit removes the requirements for natural skills in order to witness. The presence of the Holy Spirit removes the requirement for natural skills in order to witness. Through His supernatural power, the Holy Spirit makes witnessing a possibility and a responsibility of every believer. Any process for equipping persons to witness should include help for recognizing the Spirit's presence. The Holy Spirit alone can convince a person of the reality of his sin. God's righteousness in the coming judgment, John 16, 7-11. Persuasive people may get decisions, but the Holy Spirit brings about conversion. Well, I could duplicate that. I marked some other passages, but I, I won't read any more than that. Suffice it to say, what he's saying is, and, and, and the, by the way, if you want to read this, and you check those passages, everything he said would sound right. 
because he's got a passage there will, the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things. The Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. You won't even have to think when you speak, but the Holy Spirit will speak through you. Don't give a second thought about it. Okay? Well, first of all, observation. If we're going to do exegesis, we live in a world. I don't know why the Holy Spirit's teaching all these different messages. When the Mormons come to witness, they're as sincere as they can be. But they bring a different message than, than the Jehovah's Witness. And then the other groups that witness are bringing different messages. So the, the problem I have now, what would you think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the book of Acts, in the letter of James, in the letters of Paul, and the other words, if, if when you pick them up, all of these people are teaching different things about salvation that are in conflict, different things about the church, different things that are in conflict. What would you think of the sources? All Inspiration. Them. Okay. You think all of them would have to, all of them except one would have to be wrong. Right. They, you, they could not have the Holy Spirit. They, they would be saying they had it. Right. And they didn't. Only one could. Only one. And, and it wouldn't have to be any, right? They could right. all be wrong. Mm -hmm. But then how would you know which one? You wouldn't have any way of knowing. Right. Yeah, see, what people have recognized as evidence through the years, even though they didn't call it that, but the lay person has always got... He's recognized that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are talking about the same Christ. And there may be some difference in the wording and things like that, but it's the same morality. It's the same life. It's the same prophecies. It's the same type of miracles. It's the same setting. Uh, it's the same salvation. And, and he's seen that. Okay, and so there's, there's been that pull because of that. So that's the first problem I have with this. But, now, what do you think would happen if you, you check those verses out, and I told you what the verses say. What do you think is going to happen, though? I said, I, I, totally dis, I totally disbelieve what he's saying there. So obviously it must be that I differ with the, the interpretation, which is based on the exegesis and the context. Now, when we go back to those verses, what do you think we might find that would cause me to think that way? About those verses, because they're there. Every verse he said is accurate. Who he's talking to. Okay. Every last one of those verses, without exception, is a direct statement from Jesus to the chosen apostles. And he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, I mean Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world of what you have seen with your own eyes. And the Holy Spirit will give you power. The Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance all I've taught you. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things. You weren't ready for it right now. And so he's going to teach you all things. You won't even, don't worry when they call you before the governor and everything like that because you won't even have to think. The Holy Spirit will give you remembrance. But then he goes on to say, these miracles will follow you. And then in my name, you will do such and such and such and such. And they went forth and preached, and the words they spoke were confirmed by the miracles that followed. And a good, 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 um, show that he was talking to the apostles is and if you take up deadly snakes they won't hurt you mm -hmm. and very few 
people that even believe that believe they can take up deadly snakes. But did you all see that? that yes. Yeah. 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 Right, now, isn't, now, isn't that a good, did you see that, Mark? Oh, right, it was on oh, Dateline Tuesday night. And it was an excellent presentation. Because uh, this guy went and lived with them for several years and got caught up in it. Was and was reporter. converted for a period of time. And then realized what had happened and got out but of it. it was his emotions. Yeah. And, but they had, because he was converted and got him caught up in it, that he got all kinds of good footage. They let him in there with his camera and everything because they thought this guy has, has been converted himself, which he was. He was, he was no phony. He handled snakes too. But anyway, here they're putting it on there is the belief of fundamentalist Christians. And the way they separate them, it says they believe the Bible literally. Well, if you go back and read in Mark, it says that very thing. That, that they'll handle snakes, etc. Okay? So what we have going on though, number one, they mentioned that 73 of these people have been bitten and killed since the turn of the century. This is just this in this area of Alabama. The reason I sit around Alabama, in most states it's against the law, but in Alabama it's not. 73 of them died. Not only that, they had one guy been bitten 118 times, and it showed his arm was all contorted in various ways, his fingers were messed up, his hand was messed up. In other words, all the effects of the poison. And they showed a number of those people that twisted hands and messed up fingers and messed up arms uh, because of the a poison over the year. In other words, the point is, it did harm them. It killed them and it harmed them. Now the way around that is simple. What do you think they said? Right, or his time time and like they asked one lady. Well, God, God wanted to take him through the snake. Right. 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 They asked one lady. Says, "Don't you see? They won't want to get bit. They won't call a doctor." Right. And her husband had died. And she says, "If you had it to do over again, just be honest. Would you call it? Absolutely not." She says, "I believe with all my heart it was his time to go, and that's, that's the way right. God took him." That's right. So, see, there's no way of teaching them any different. You and I don't have enough faith. They do it because they have the faith. And anybody that gets bit, it's their time to go, or maybe they're doubting. You know, I have second thoughts about that thing. And these are huge rattlesnakes. Mm -hmm. and, but what happens, they showed the whole setting, and they get to playing the music, and they get a rhythm going. And everybody's moving and dancing, and, and he you just got mesmerized. You listen to it, you can feel them. Yeah. 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 into a frenzy where they can't even think anymore. Yeah. They have and he just watched it, and he got caught up in it. Yeah. Yeah. Music is powerful. And so he got caught up in it himself, and he just found himself. And then also, what he pointed out, and I hadn't thought of this before, he says, you can become addicted to being close to death and yet not dying. And says, sort of like race car drivers or evil can evil or people like that, they actually get a real high on, on, on doing uh, the, the, they, they, There are some people that get real, he says, he, they, they get this high. And said, he got it. When he was around there, uh, when you watch a movie that is a lot of people getting killed and things like that, your, emo your heart's beating faster and everything. You're, you're actually getting scary movies. Why do people go to movies to get scared? They get a high out of it. Their emotions are up. And see, no, it's not so. Right. But, but what happens then, he said, when you're in there with those snakes, that everybody's getting a high. It's tremendously exciting. And see, most of the times, they're very good at handling those snakes. So most nights, nobody gets bit. 
and they, they walk out of there feeling like, man, they've had the Holy Spirit and everything like that. And then they've got their explanation for what it happens. Well, he got so involved in it that he just found, he said after a while, after weeks and weeks of this, he found himself just being pulled in that direction. Well, again, he was a person that believed the Bible when they sent him in there in the first place. And he had read and he pointed out, Mark does literally say this, okay? So he got in there and then he said that he just, he got a real high and a real sensation and so he wound up doing it several times. But then he drew back and he realized what had happened to himself. And he realized that he had been almost hypnotized and, you know, pulled into the process. Okay, now let's see what would have happened. It also says, and when they drink deadly poison, it yeah. will not hurt them. And they, they drank poison, but um, what, it wasn't 2020. Dateline had done a test on it, and it did contain some poison, but not enough. Yeah, they said they said it was highly, highly diluted, and that right. it couldn't have killed them. There was no way possible. Mm -hmm. Okay, now let's go back and look at that passage. Let's say you're going to exegete, <coughs> and you're going to go below the surface. All right, the first thing. Uh, in your, the text you all got there, Mark, turn over to Mark 16 and look at the latter part of that. That's where we'll fall. Oh, isn't there some, um, isn't there some question as to whether or not this is supposed to be part of the text? That's what I want you to write. Turn that Bible there. I think it has turned to chapter 16 of Mark mm -hmm. and beginning with right about verse 9. Oh, yeah. This is the most reliable of the manuscripts in other ancient wit. Witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. Okay. Now, see, the King James was translated from late. They didn't have all the <coughs> manuscripts and all. All right. Now, remember when we studied manuscripts. Now, I don't think Brian and, uh, no, I know Brian and Carol was not with us when we studied manuscripts. We pointed out that when textual scholars get through with the manuscripts, you can be absolutely positive of 99.5% of the material. There is a half of 1% that is corrupted text. And, and we know that. It's nothing that involves any doctrines or salvation or evidence or anything like that. All right, this passage, Mark 16, verses 9 to the end, is part of that one half of 1%. In other words, if you've got uh, uh, 200 pages and a half of 1% is corrupted, you're saying that one page and 200 is corrupted text. This, so the first thing you'd notice if you if you really studied and looked up some sources is that uh, hey, it, this section is not in the the oldest manuscripts. It, it's only in later manuscripts. But let's go back and let's say it is there, and we'll have it right there, and we can deal with it. Remember when? Let's think of the entire tenor. When the devil asked Jesus to prove he was the Messiah, he quoted a psalm that said that even if you fall down or cast yourself, that the angels will bear you up. And so he said, if you are the Son of God, then cast yourself down. And let's see if that comes about. And how did Jesus answer that? Do not tempt the Lord thy God. Okay, in other words, it lets us know that this psalm about God's providential care didn't mean for believers to go out and purposely jeopardize themselves, but rather it's that when you're doing what you would normally do to take care of yourself, God is also concerned about the things that are beyond your control and everything like that. But it actually, it, it would be, Jesus said it would be wrong 
for a person to purposely put themselves in jeopardy uh, just to show out in some way. All right? So what these people are doing there is exactly what Jesus refused to do. He refused to put himself in jeopardy in order to show out, and so that would be tempting God, and yet they are up there showing out. In other words, they're, they're going after that snake. It's not coming after them. All right, now, a proper thing that then somebody can look, we can see, is there an example in the book of Acts where an apostle got bit by a snake and didn't get hurt? Okay? Paul. The apostle Paul. He didn't go after the snake. The snake come after him. And he just reached his hand in, and the snake was coming in, and it bit him. And man, they stood back and they thought, hey, we're going to watch for this fellow to die. You know, he's got his just dues. And when nothing happened to him, they thought, hey, this man is a god. But the point is, it actually furnished an opportunity for Paul to preach, because they looked at him in a special way. So we see that what is happening, God's providential care had been promised to these apostles until they finished their course and got the message out. And then he told them some other things were going to happen there. So even if you allow that, when you look at the way Jesus handled passages that dealt with God's care, and he refused to willfully put himself in jeopardy. In fact, there was times when Jesus ran and, and uh, hid from people, wasn't there? Remember how his parents fled? Uh, Jesus would try to avoid... Uh, there were times that he would not go into Jerusalem because they were trying to take his life. He had a place where he met with the disciples in secret so that the authorities couldn't get to him because they wanted to take his life. So we actually see Jesus exercising real cautious concern and, and not putting himself in willful jeopardy. So when we look at that in light of the rest of the New Testament, then also it says... If they did this, nothing was supposed to harm them, right? If they picked, but what about these people? Well, I'd had if 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 I'd have been led to believe this and tried it the first time, some old boy got bit and died, I'd have said something is wrong here. All right. Now, another thing that's involved, and he points out, is good old common sense. That anytime something sounds illogical to you. <clears throat> there is at least a possibility that, that it is. And, and so, and by the way, most people, even with their King James Bible, had apply, have applied good old common sense logic and haven't gone around picking up rattlesnakes as a result of that. But I mean, this was an extreme example I know, but a good example to show that they were taking it literally without doing any exegesis at all. They didn't go back and look at Jesus. They didn't look at the other verses on providence. They didn't look at anything about the, the manuscripts or anything. They just read this verse in that setting and just took it literally. You will pick up snakes and it won't harm you. Mark? Um, how did they, um, did they, did they try to make them look dumb or? Ignorant? Yeah. Uh, I mean. They were, yeah. but they didn't. They were uneducated and all, but they, they really, this guy got caught, that did it, got caught up in it. It was like he could understand it, that, uh, that there was a, a sense of power and a sense of elation uh, that, see, in their group, you're really somebody. If That's the ultimate. In other words, the impression to my mind is that they had the few snake handlers up here and the rest of the audience are back there getting this high and they're singing and they got the music going on. And they're, so they're enjoying it, but he's back there. But then gradually, 
if you ever mustered up enough faith to get up there and handle that thing, then that really elevated you. You see, you were really somebody. And so you could, you could see how that, that they had a reason for doing that. In other words, that it was like uh, if you're playing baseball, you're somebody if you hit a home run. And in, 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 in same with golf ball, you can hit a hole in one or whatever. So it's like when you got up there where the snakes are and handle them, you were at the top. And so these people that do that in their group, they're almost like little gods. You know, they're just really e exalted in, in that area. And I could see where people could get caught in that and then feed on all of that acclaim uh, that other people allow to them. I, I believe personally that people like Evil Knievel do this. They, they enjoy other people talking about how courageous they are and how brave they are and how daring they are. And they're willing to do so many things other people won't do. And I think they obviously get a, a sensation out of that type of thing. You know, that, uh, and I think these in, in, in the same way. By the way, we have a similar thing that if, uh, all groups, I think, do. That what happens in, in, in our particular fellowship or in any fellowship, when a preacher comes in to hold a meeting or whatever, and he, those things that that particular group stands for, he really hits hard, condemns everything else that disagrees with it and really emphasizes it and everything like that. What happens when everybody walks out the door and he's standing there to shake hands? Does he get any reinforcement? Yeah. Oh, that was great. But I haven't heard a sermon like that, and I don't know. <laughs> that was great. People just don't preach it anymore like they used to that. We just don't believe Christ up in Altamont. And, of course, everybody knows that we're like the Baptists when it comes to baptism. You know, we just we do a lot of preaching. Not putting it down. I'm yeah. just saying we've got something, a little bit of common there. Right. And then we fight. We're so exact that we fight one. We not only fight everybody else, but then we fight one another on it. So anyway, this guy, here it is, little bitty country church, about 15 people there. A well-known preacher in the church. You wouldn't, he shouldn't even, you wouldn't even think a big-known preacher could even be there. But what it is, he does a lot of writing, and he goes to this little rural town, and, they, and he does his writing. It's a quiet place, and he's got an <coughs> places to hike and all. But while he's there, he holds a meeting for these people. And then what they pay him covers his expenses, while he's taken several weeks off to do his writing. And this is this is this going on year after year. So anyway, I go up there and I'm going over to hear him. You know, he's a big name guy and he's written books and all. Nope, there's not a single visitor in there. Just members of the Church of Christ. There's not even many kids Luke's age in there. Just adults. Most of them old people, you know, like a lot of the rural congregations. What do you think his sermon topic was for the night? Baptism. And he, they went, now look, they went down into the water. They come up out of the water. It was a burial, and it was a planning. And John baptized here in Jordan because there was much water. Now, everybody was baptized the same immediately when they were saved. They got permission of sins. Everybody in there, everybody believed they ought to be immersed. You see, there was nobody else there. And so they started coming up, everybody said, Brother so-and-so, that was, I haven't heard a good old-fashioned sermon on baptism. These young preachers just don't preach on it anymore, you know, and all, all this kind of stuff. And so I told him, I said, that was an excellent lesson on baptism, but it was the worst sermon I ever heard in my life. <laughs> I said, it was, I said, these people here, I said, this congregation here is so lukewarm, it's pathetic. And I said, that's the reason it's dead. 
They, they don't, I said, don't, they don't do any personal work at all. Uh, there's absolutely no personal work. They don't give as they should. It's dead as a doornail. And I said, you, you've been here a week. You haven't preached a single sermon on discipleship or doing anything or anything like that. And, and, you just, and, and when you walk out of here, they're going to think you're great and that there is, there is heaven bound as they can be. And there, and there, something is wrong there. But I'm saying, that doesn't just go on there. It goes on all over in the various groups. I mean, that preachers can feed on the brethren exalting them and thinking the great and there's no quicker way to get it than to, than to give the party line and so I'm saying that really I'm not putting that snake handler down he's getting a certain satisfaction for being exalted but it's easy for us to do the same thing it is difficult to go contrary to the majority I what did he say when you told him that uh, he was just he just got, it, it took him totally I didn't say anything by a round I would not embarrass him or anything like that and I did it very low but I told him that, see, I was a lot younger then, by the way. I wouldn't do it now. I, I wouldn't do it in, in that way or anything like that. I'd walk out and feel it or anything. But when I was young, I was uh, uh, much more of a fiery person than I am now, sometimes too much so. But uh, that uh, it just bothered me. You know, I was out and, and you know, we were doing, had a real personal work program. Uh, this is when the Jewel Miller film strips come out and we were using and we were baptizing people. And they were one of the groups there that uh, was criticizing us, you know, that if you're doing anything and successful, you must be doing something wrong. And they called them femstrip Christians, and, and they didn't have enough faith to go forward before the whole congregation be baptized. See, we were taking them and baptizing them like we, they want to be baptized Thursday night, we baptized them Thursday night. So the brethren hadn't seen anybody baptized, except after a sermon, you know, and so they was criticized for that. So anyway... All of that was, you know, a part of it. But I, all I'm saying there, that kind of thing happens in a similar way. Barbara and I together, uh, Sunday night service, and only the brethren there. And so what does the guy speak on? What shall we call it? And, and he comes up with a name for the church. And, and, and it's just a legal statement of what everybody there was. Uh, remember, there was no visitors. Uh, there was no disagreement. He didn't tell anybody anything they didn't uh, know or anything like that. But again, you watch them when they go out. I hadn't heard a sermon like this in years. You know, that's, the, that's holding to the old faith. You know, we need more uh, of that kind of thing. Well, these guys with the snakes get the same kind of thing. And if you did any reading on the, the JWs, they get, their, they get their exaltation on who knocks on the most doors. Mm -hmm. And don't think there's no pride there. When, when they get together, uh, if you've not been to their services, not read their material and all, that this person that really bangs those doors and, and, and keeps record of it and, and, and is out doing everybody else, they're really exalted. And, and they're put up there. So you can have something in everything. And it may be the gal in another group that doesn't wear a lick of makeup and it's got hair eight foot long. You know, she may be the one who stands out. You know, if any of them. That, uh, so, and I'm, I'm not, again, I'm just saying looking at us as, as people. Uh, and, and, I'm, and there is a place if we really want to learn to God, learn God's Word, I believe we have to, in groups like this, uh, and as individuals, uh, really just sit down and study it and forget what you are, whether you're Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Church of Christ, or anything, just forget it. And, and just read the Bible from the standpoint of trying to understand what it says, use good exegesis, 
and your God-given intelligence and realize that God has given you the intellect to understand uh, what he's written by the Holy Spirit. Anybody else want to make any comments? By the way, anybody want to browse through some things? I just brought this as a sample of some type things. Um, these are original works, like this is a, one of an eight-volume set, Justin Martyr, Polycarp, Pistol of Barnabas, uh, all of these writers that wrote in the before the second century and the early second century, these are their actual documents and letters and all. A secondary source is when you read it in a commentary, and he's telling you so and so. The primary source is when you get the guy's writing itself. Uh, like uh, Josephus, secondary is when you read it in another source. The primary is, and see, Josephus sometimes is taken out of context. I have that. And so are some of these others. So I'm saying it's good some of the basic primary sources that, and by the way, our library is outstanding now. It's, it's getting better all the time. Danny is doing a fantastic job of buying books for the library. I don't know if you know, everybody appreciates it and all, but he is really doing a good job of fixing it up, and he just keeps adding to it and doing a real good job of selecting material for it. But anyway, that here's one, archaeology in the New Testament. But just a few basic books can be an asset. This is one, Jerusalem in the time of, of Jesus. That from these books, see when people deal with just history, it's not like theologians that sometimes have an axe to grind. He just gives you the culture, the language, and the history, and everything like that, you know. And that's where we need to get our basic information. And, and then when we look at this commentary, we can know, well, how much is opinion here and, and how much is just hardcore fact? And I'm not saying don't read the commentaries. There's excellent commentaries, and, and I wouldn't give up on one of my commentaries, and I want more. So no, no problem there. But I'm saying that commentaries need to be checked also, and everybody needs to have access to some few. I mean, those that want to study and read it, and, and for all it's worth and all, access to some primary materials that they can actually check out. How do you, um, okay, we were at McKay's used bookstore in Knoxville, and I found that Josephus, the Jewish Wars, I got it for $5. Grab it. I did. I grabbed it. I mean, well, I had been to one of your Bible studies, and you had used that, and I said, I'm going to get this. Yeah. <laughs> but it is so hard. It was, it's, I've tried to read, it's hard for me to read, so a commentary now, would probably help me. But what this is, you would like this better now. It's a, normally, did you get the four volume set or just one of the four volumes? See the small, it's in small print, it's four volume set. It's tiny, the print's real tiny, okay. it's a big old thick book. This is big. And this is with, this has the, the Josephus, but then it also has commentary by a Jewish scholar. Well, that would be good. And so it's excellent. Yeah. And so I've got the actual four-volume set with the tiny print. Well, see, so you don't read that stuff. You go back and you check it whenever you want to check him out on some part. This is the kind of thing that you'll actually read. Right. Uh, and, and by the way, anything you want to read, get decent print, you know. Yeah. But then a lot of things you don't need. You don't. A lot of times you don't need reference books. You you have them there so that when you want to check out something, you can go to the index and you go ahead and check out that particular point. And say you're you're teaching a Bible class uh, on Matthew chapter seven, 
and you run into some things that you're not sure of, you go to the index and you can find the latest archaeological discoveries. You can find what you want about the culture and the language and everything, just with a few sources.